just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2008. And you want to know how I got this podcast? The movie, The Dark Knight. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the best movies ever made. And when we do, we are sending them to outer space for future study, for the aliens to enjoy, and just because we can. God damn it, Amy. We are doing something no one has ever done. We don't talk about that enough. We really don't. We really don't. And also, we don't talk about... How much you say the word endeavoring. I really like it. And Endeavor, you know? that was the name of a rocket. And it feels like it's all coming together. <laughs> it really is. And I got to say, uh, last week when we talked about heat, we made a joke that we needed to have a shirt that says she's got a nice podcast. And that has now come into fruition. <laughs> we do have a uh, an Al Pacino. <laughs> she's got a great podcast shirt uh, available in the Tee Public store. So head on over there to wear a shirt that will be confounding and weird and lovely because no one will understand it, but also they will get it and it will be perfect. Um, but I'm a little sad, Amy. This is the end of our Heroes and Villains series. This has taken us through so many great movies. We were just talking about this, like from Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse to Dark Knight. Those seem like normal bookends. But in between, we've gone to Paddington. We've done RRR, White Heat. We have gone into Fatal Attraction. We have done it all. It has been one of my favorite series. I mean, every week I look forward to talking to you and like... Sure, me too. Cracking our skulls together and being like, what did you think? What did you think? What did you think? What did you think? But this has just been like, I absolutely love it. I don't, I don't even want this summer to end. In fact, like last night, I was just in the mood to keep the summer going. And I went to go see a movie called, and I have a feeling you know this movie, Angel Heart from the 80s. Oh, I remember Angel Heart because Angel Heart was 
an NC-17 film that was not an adult film, like not a pornographic film. And it was like, wait, what could they possibly be doing? And it had Lisa Bonet, who at that time was the star of The Cosby Show. And that was a very big deal for me, very much on my radar. Now, I know Robert De Niro's in it. I've never seen it. But those were the (laughs) takeaways at that time. Like, what was this movie? What happened in it? Why is Lisa Bonet in it? You know, it just felt very dirty, like Madonna's sex book. It felt like I knew about it, but I couldn't get my hands on it. (laughs) Well, I saw it. It is weird that it's NC-17. It probably shouldn't be. But I was delighted, delighted, delighted to see a ridiculous De Niro performance in that movie where he's got long press on fingernails and he's playing a character whose name uh, is... Was it Louis Cipher? Louis Cipher. Greatest name of all time. There's people named oh like, my gosh. you know, Louis Valentine Cipher. and Favorite and Proudfoot. Everybody's got a, a, a really fabulous name. Um, and yeah, and, and I felt like it, it's wacky heat. It's like a detective noir story. And it's, and it's directed by like Alan Parker, you know, who did The Wall. And it has kind of that same weird vibe of like 80s films where there's like too much water and too much smoke and everything is strange. And anyway, I just thought I was like another great villain and I don't want villains to stop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think that we need more films that get people like intrigued by simply the premise of it, because this is a movie that was talked about just Like, what are they doing? And I don't think that we have movies like that anymore. I don't think that we are, like, taken in by what cinema can be in that way. Like, what could they be doing? And I feel like, you know, Brown Bunny, maybe, you know, it's always a little bit based in sexuality, I guess. But, you know, very rarely are we talking about, like, a thematic film that is you know, rocking the core of our system. You know, I think we've we've pretty much gotten over everything. You're like, this will upend how you see the world. You're I right. I, mean, I feel like part of that is like movie blog culture, maybe in a dumb way where it's like, we have the first still that shows the ring that he's going to wear in this superhero movie. Right. What will it do? And there's a million press interviews and blah, 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 blah. And everything is talked about before the movie even comes out. Well, but, it, but also on a larger level, I think you're right. Like we aren't, we are, there is, people are afraid to shock or to have smoke and mystery and mirrors around a movie. What possibly could be inside? Yeah, there's a war that seems to be played out between how to advertise a movie and what a filmmaker wants you to see before you see the film. Now, I know there's a film out right now called Barbarian, and oh, I don't yeah. want to know anything about it. And I don't I'm, know anything about it. It's wonderful. And that's <laughs> how I want to go in. And I've stopped watching trailers for the most part. God, I love trailers, but it gives me too, too much. And I will say, talking about that idea of being deceptive or keeping a secret from the audience, the movie you're talking about today, the final one in our our series of heroes and villains, Christopher Nolan is one of those people that is able to still keep a secret. What is it about? The images are big, uh, whether it was Tenet, but especially this movie we're talking about today, The Dark Knight, what Heath Ledger was going to look like as the Joker was a big fucking deal. I remember, can we see it? What is it? Covering of trailers and you didn't know and everyone was trying so hard to get a look, not even at his costume, but his face. And that was a secret that was kept really until, you know, the very end, or at least my memory of it was we were in the dark about what the Joker looked like until the movie started to go into full promotion mode. 
Yeah, they they made, I think, the suspense of that part of the marketing in a way that was really smart. You know, because I think some people market films with suspense that are that end up being kind of dumb. Like I'm looking at most J.J. Abrams films. Mm-hmm. But like for the Joker, I remember one of the things they did was they created an image of the Joker's face, but they were only going to reveal it one pixel at a time. Mm. And what people had to do is they had to like send their email into some site. And if they did that, they would unlock one pixel of the Heath Ledger photo. And they set up like kind of blockades so that, you know, you couldn't just like set up a, you know, some sort of like computer program that would like send in a million fake emails and like do it. Like one person couldn't do it. It took like 97,000 people to send in emails. It took 20 hours to reveal this picture of Heath Ledger and the Joker, the very first one to show you what he looked like. And then after they did it, they kept it up for a day and then they took it down and they took it away and they made it mysterious again. And so they used that idea of like, fandom group effort challenges quests and kind of build it into the whole marketing of this film i mean at one point they were like baking cell phones into cakes and sending people on basically like escape room you know player games to like find secrets to figure out what this movie was about that is brilliant marketing and not so much like we can't tell you exactly what the cloverfield monster looks like and then it's like a big old letdown anyway and i think that you know that idea of wanting to be titillated and go to the movies like that want to go to the movies, even with the Marvel film that even with Spider-Man this year, like you didn't ever get a confirmation that there were going to be three Spider-Men in the movie, right? Like there was rumors, there were thoughts, and they did a great job of keeping it intriguing without like fully showing your hand. And I just want that to be back a little bit more. I think Marvel definitely keeps secrecy at an all-time high. I think we see it with Game of Thrones too, but it is, uh, it's fun. It's fun to go in and be surprised. Like you talked about like blogging culture and we talked about the reviews last week. It is, it is uh, an art form right now to titillate more than just speak about and reveal. I think it's so easy to reveal. You're right. It's the art of the tease. Yeah. I feel like burlesque dancers knew about this and they were shocking people in the 40s being like, what? What's behind this fan? What do I got here? So you're right. We're just going all the way back to the original things that excite us. I hope. I hope so, too. <laughs> well, with that on the table, I think the only thing left to do is unspool it. Ugh, that There's, lick lick. I know, the lick lick. <gasps> The year is 2008. The American real estate bubble reaches its largest price drop in history, resulting in a credit crisis, unprecedented foreclosure rates, and ultimately leading to the Great Recession. Several high-profile financial institutions, including Citigroup and Countrywide Financial, report multi-billion dollar losses due to the subprime mortgage problems. And the U.S. government signs a $700 billion bailout in the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008. The writers and Hollywood strike against the studios demanding uh, a percentage of revenue rather than a fixed fee. The strike lasts three months and affects many popular TV programs and talk shows. But without that strike, we would never have gotten Breaking Bad because uh, Jesse Pinkman was going to be killed off. But that writer's strike was able to keep him around and make that show, I think, even better. A two-hander is what it needed to be. The hot films of the year include Iron Man. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and today's film, The Dark Knight. Amy, who's in it, what's it about, and what was on the radio? The Dark Knight 
It is the middle film in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. It is co-written by him and his brother Jonathan. There's some story help from David S. Goyer of our old buddy Blade. Um, And it is, I would say, the standout trilogy of the modern superhero era. But I love that we're doing the middle film and not the others. Uh, The first film, Batman Begins, is about Batman's origin and rise. Batman is, of course, played by Christian Bale. The last film, The Dark Knight Rises, is about... Actually, God knows what. I get, like, super confused. I just know that it ends with, like, Batman retiring to date Catwoman. But this middle piece is about everything, uh, specifically the moral predicament of trying to be moral when the world is scary and chaotic. Batman here wants to get out of the vigilante game because it's becoming too dangerous, not necessarily for him, but for the citizens of Gotham who are dressing up like him, getting themselves hurt. But first, he feels like he has to find the town a new symbol of hope, and he settles on the badass district attorney Harvey Dent, who just arrests, like, every mobster in town in the film's opening act. Harvey is played by Aaron Eckhart. Um, Harvey is also dating the woman that Batman loves, Rachel, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, But Harvey's big mob takedown triggers the ascension of a bank robber called the Joker, of course, played by the one and only Heath Ledger, who sets out to force the mysterious Batman to unmask himself while destroying everything good in Gotham, including Gotham's white knight Harvey Dent, for a social experiment that the Joker is doing just because, just because chaos reigns. Take a listen. You've changed things. Forever. There's no going back. See, to them, you're just a freak. Like me. What do we got? Nothing. No name, no other alias. Clothing is custom. Nothing in his pockets but knives and lint. Evening, Commissioner. Why so serious? The Dark Knight was released on July 18th, 2008, and it totally flopped. I'm sorry, kidding. It dominated. Let me check my notes. Yes, it dominated, raking in over a billion dollars to date. And it absolutely changed the landscape of the superhero blockbuster. Like suddenly every superhero had to be like dark and gritty and traumatized. And suddenly, like even people like the Academy had to take superhero films oh so seriously, especially after Heath Ledger's Joker won a posthumous Best Supporting Actor. Uh, In fact, when The Dark Knight was not nominated for Best Picture that year, the Academy expanded its slots from five to ten. So this changed everything. Even, even, it even helps like little films that are nothing like The Dark Knight get their own Best Picture nomination. But really, what we're wondering is what was on the radio that weekend, and it is the first hit from a singer who would go on to become herself a very big star. A song that is itself famous for the flurry of controversy that it inspired, and a song that also talks about being drawn to somebody whose name you don't even know, but you have this urge to experiment. It is Katy Perry and I Kissed a Girl.
That song on the radio, this movie in the theater, really two sides of a coin, a Harvey Dent coin, if you will. <laughs> you know, if you want to spend some wholesome time on the internet, I suggest doing what I did last night and hanging out in the comment threads on YouTube of the Katy Perry official music video for I Kissed a Girl, because it is a lot of people being like, I knew I liked the song when I was a child and I didn't totally understand why. And now I do. Or people being like, this song inspired <laughs> me to kiss my friend yesterday. And guess what? It worked great. People are sending updates to their love stories. This, like, I think I have the courage to kiss my friend tonight. Update, I did. It went great. It's it's absolutely adorable. A very cute, supportive corner of the universe. People still commenting on this song very frequently all of these years later. Well, I think you could argue that The Dark Knight has that same kind of resonance in the sense that many people wanted to just go see a big Batman versus the Joker film. And it's something much larger. It's something that I think grows and has very deep thematic roots in it that in many ways pays off better than your average run-of-the-mill superhero film. And we're talking about a time where it's 2008, Iron Man has just come out, so it's the first Robert Downey Jr. you know, version of Iron Man. The MCU is forming in this incarnation <laughs> that we have. But the and MCU is still so unknown that they use the abbreviation MCU throughout all of the Dark Knight as like their, I guess it's shorthand for their cop station. They keep being like, yes, take the Joker to right. the MCU. And I'm like, yes. this is so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're taking him to, uh, you know, the lawyers, the property lawyers to make sure that the right villain <laughs> is going into the right bucket. But there is something really interesting here because this movie is... I believe uh, the first comic book movie ever to reach $1 billion, right? That's worldwide. It's a giant, giant hit. And I think the reason why it becomes a hit is on the surface, it is a superhero film. But this movie is so much more. It's, it's more akin to Heat. It's more about, you know, society and people and, and these deep themes that I think start to allow all of our superhero movies to dip their toe there. And some have and some haven't, but it definitely opens up this world of what you can do with superheroes. Yeah, there's stretches of this film where I think you almost forget that it is a superhero movie or a comic book movie. It feels almost just like a noir, a crime film, a drama. It feels... There's, there's a realism to this film that I find really startling every time that I watch it that doesn't make it at all feel comic booky in the slightest. And Nolan you know, has talked about his love of Heat. In fact, this is Nolan right here introducing the cast of Heat as he hosts a Q&A with them because he loves this film so much. When Heat came out in 1995, I was living in England. And uh, this is back in the days when people actually read reviews and didn't just look at the score online. And I read a review that pointed out that it was a new American classic. I wish I could remember the reviewer. I would credit him with prescience. Uh, and they said they couldn't wait to see it a second time. And I'd been looking at the film superficially and thinking, great people involved with it, but it's cops and it's robbers. Is there more to be said about that? Uh, this review made me go immediately to see it the day it opened. Uh, and I went back the next day to see it a second time because the film, as you've just experienced in this, this rare privilege of seeing it on the big screen, is was a new American masterpiece. Now it's just an American masterpiece. Uh, and quite an incredible piece of work that I've drawn inspiration from and, and filmmakers of my generation have drawn inspiration from 
in the year since it was released. And he said really specifically, you know, that with The Dark Knight, he wanted to do the same thing as Heat. He wanted to tell a very large story of the city. You know, and he used Heat as an inspiration, that he wanted to give Gotham, you know, a weight, a depth, a breadth. And he wanted to deal with the political figures, the media figures, and tell a story of how, the of the whole fabric of how a city is bound together. And he had all these ideas of, like, taking iconic characters and putting them in a world like Heat. And he even asked, you know... Al Pacino and Robert De Niro on stage about this idea, like telling to using iconic characters to tell the story of a city. And as we really learned last week, listening to their awkward interviews with Brian Wilson, this is not really a question they feel like answering. In the case of this film, these characters also have an iconic presence and they're part of a grand visual design that's going on. And I was curious to ask both of you, in, in how do you balance in your process the sincerity of the interior process with the, the understanding of the iconic nature of the character. <laughs> you first. <laughs> I'm ready. I love that. I will say that watching this movie right after we watched Heat, it's undeniable that the opening sequence is not an homage to Heat. Like, this movie definitely has a lot of homages to Heat without feeling like it's ripping off Heat, right? They're not, you know, stealing uh, an armored vehicle. It's Heat through the lens of Nolan. I think that Nolan has two uh, kind of thought processes going into films. I think he's a huge James Bond fan. I think you definitely see that in the Batman character. And I definitely see the Heat fanboy here. But that opening sequence is amazing. I remember... I saw that opening sequence. It was like a 15-minute IMAX presentation of just that opening scene. You didn't know if it was the opening scene. It just started, and that's how they tease the movie out because this movie is shot, or a lot of the movie is shot on IMAX. I think 35 minutes of the film is on IMAX, and at that point, shooting on IMAX cameras was a giant pain in the ass. The cameras were so loud that they couldn't really have usable sound on set, but that opening of the heist is it's so massive, it's so big that it's funny that it's one of the first things that you kind of forget about this movie. The movie is so much more than that. It's like, oh, right, that happened. But it just is like a little James Bond pre-scene, right? It, it does have to do with the plot. The Joker steals the mob's money, but it really is just an entry point into it. And it's a funny entry point because it's not even about Batman. Most Batman movies start with a Batman or, you know, most superhero movies start with a superhero, you know, who are you? I'm Batman or, you know, yeah. a pop in. You know, and to start off with the Joker in this scene of just brutality and you set up everything that you need to know about the Joker in this one elaborate scene that is so action-packed, but also tells you so much about what this movie is going to be about. Well, yeah, and it's so controlled from the very beginning. Just that opening shot of, like, zooming into the office building, wondering what's going to happen, and then that perfection of just one window exploding. Like, it's, it's, just, it's epic and exact at the same time, which really knocks me out about this film. And... And yeah, like usually when there's a crime in the opening scene of of a superhero movie, it ends with the superhero showing up to stop it. And this is a whole bank robbery that takes place, tons of people getting killed, and Batman never shows up. Batman's not here at all. But the storytelling just starts at such a clip. Like 
you see the Joker straight away. And just from like the posture of how he's standing, you know it's him even though you haven't seen his face, even though you just see a mask. And I think there's a funny parallel. Like the first thing we see the Joker do is basically the opening of, of the robbery in Heat. He gets in a van with a bunch of people and we know that he's the guy who's going to get everybody killed, just like Wayne Grow does in the first film. And they're talking about, like, why is he the Joker? Like, in, in minute one, they're setting up, like, here is where your focus is in this film. Three guys. Two guys on the roof. Every guy gets a share. Five shares is plenty. Six shares. Don't forget the guy playing the job. He thinks he can sit it out and still take a slice. I know why they call him the Joker. So why do they call him the Joker? I heard he wears makeup. Makeup? Yeah, to scare people. You know, war paint. And, yeah, and then you have like William Fickner in there, you know, as like the bank manager who dark, who um, Chris Nolan has said, yeah, I cast him in there because I love him in Heat. That's one of my nods to Heat. And he's the guy who's like violence, needing to try to solve things himself, grab a gun is what makes everything go sideways. But just what you see in this performance from Heath Ledger, I am, I, I, I okay, I just need to say up front, by the way, like, Every time I get some space from The Dark Knight, I think that this movie is overhyped. And every time I recently rewatch it, I'm like, fucking hell, this movie is incredible. And so just seeing the physicality of Heath being the Joker inside of this figure that you don't even quite know yet, that he's like doing these hypnotic sidesteps and like confusing people and doing subtle lies, telling his like other bank associates that, you know, guys with shotguns are out of shotgun shells when they're not because he's trying to get them killed. There's like so many little beats in here that just, you know, I I think I've watched this film. I don't even know how many times. And I, I feel like I notice a new little detail every single time, which is. Amy, I feel the exact same way. I mean, this movie definitely pays off and there's so many little details And scenes and moments that you can watch, we talked about this being the definitive Nolan movie. And sometimes I'm like, is that right? Is it the definitive one? But I think it really is. Right, because we've weakened. Sometimes I'm like, sometimes I will make a really strong case for Memento. We know that this show in particular has a lot of people who deeply love the prestige. Yeah. I don't want to pick this one, but. (laughs) And I love the prestige. I think Memento is fantastic. We talked about Inception on the show. There are so many levels to what he he deals with in his own films. But I think there is one through line throughout, which is this idea of the lies that we tell ourselves and the lies that we tell other people. And it's not always for, you know, a negative effect. A lot of the times it's for a positive effect. I think you can look at that in every one of his movies. Like in Memento, I think the hero creates a version of himself that he wants to be through writing on his body, prestige. There's an illusion that's being performed that's a lie to the audience. Inception is this idea of, you know, DiCaprio lying to himself about what he really wants and what he's trying to get. And this movie, in many ways, while being the most fantastical, I mean, I guess that's just because it's superheroes, but it's a very real world. It's a very grounded world. Um it's really right at its core. I mean, it's it's black, it's black and white. Uh, what thematically he's trying to say here? Yeah, because some of the stuff that he's saying in here is not at all what I think you expect in a superhero film. You know, it's not at all what you expect in even like a film a film about heroes and villains. Like one of the strong tenets of this film is the idea that like maybe you can go too far arresting people 
And if you arrest people too much, then they might have to rebel. Maybe you can be too much of a hero. Maybe there is too much white. Maybe you can't, maybe the world can't handle that much goodness. You know, the way that like Alfred says here, that in a way, like by arresting all of the mob figures, Batman has just made everything worse. You crossed the line first, so you squeezed them, you hammered them to the point of desperation. And in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand. Criminals aren't complicated, Alfred. We just need to figure out what he's after. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones. But in six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport, because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I mean, even just to take that as like one idea of this film, just to like zoom in on that, which is hard because there's like 90 ideas in this movie, but to zoom in on just that one, this is a film that says you actually cannot save the day because that might make everything worse, which is really unique in this class of film. It's like, now you punch the right guy and everybody's fine. You know, superhero maybe can't save everybody, but... You know, it's not like he's making anything worse by trying. Like, this is a movie that's like, no, 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 no. There is a limit, maybe, to how much good you can do. Because on, in a way, Nolan is saying the world probably has to have crime. Like, you have to give criminals space to exist in this ecosystem, just almost even as a release valve, if you want the world to be peaceful. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. I think of this movie in a very interesting way because when people talk about it, they talk about Batman and the Joker. And I see this movie as a movie about Harvey Dent, right? Because Harvey Dent is this white knight. He is the personification of being good, of being right, 
of being a leader that has no flaws in a way, right? It, it, it purely is to root out corruption and help the people of Gotham. And this movie... Yeah. I mean, just look at the way he's introduced in that courtroom scene as the coolest, most iconic Atticus Finch who's ever walked the face of the earth. Carbon fiber, 28 caliber, main China. If you want to kill a public servant, Mr. Maroney, I recommend you buy American. Get him out of here. But Your Honor, I'm not done. I love that scene. It also plays with the convention of Harvey Dent's backstory, which is in the comics, that's how he becomes Two-Face. Uh, he is cross-examining a witness and they throw acid on his face, right? Here, you have that moment where you think, oh my God, Two-Face is going to come out right away. And then he, you know, disarms that that Maroney thug. And then you're like, wait, what is this movie? But I think this movie is about where is he going to fall? He literally says it in the movie, like what the theme of the movie is. He does. And he does it while talking about how democracy itself has its limits, which I think is like fascinating for a government figure. Gotham City is proud of an ordinary citizen standing up for what's right. Gotham needs heroes like you, elected officials, not the man who thinks he is above the law. Exactly. Who appointed the Batman? We did. All of us who stood by and let scum take control of our city. But this is a democracy, Harvey. When their enemies were at the gates, the Romans would suspend democracy and appoint one man to protect the city. It wasn't considered an honor. It was considered a public service. Harvey, the last man that they appointed to protect the Republic was named Caesar, and he never gave up his power. Okay, fine. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Look, whoever the Batman is, he doesn't want to do this for the rest of his life. How could he? Batman is looking for someone to take up his mantle. Someone like you, Mr. Dent? Maybe. If I'm up to it. What if Harvey Dent is the Caped Crusader? <laughs> I mean, that also, just to take like another single theme, that this is like a movie where one of this, you know, heroic figures is also being like, democracy. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think every system can be corrupted and every system can be thrown into chaos. And it's how you react in those moments that illuminates what type of person you are. And I think that that is really interesting because this movie is a battle, right? It's Batman feeling like he knows he will never really be accepted. He's gotten himself into a position where people are getting hurt in his name. He doesn't even really want to be doing this. And he's starting to mourn the life that he could have had. The connection with Rachel in this movie, uh, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's replacing Katie Holmes, uh, which another fun, weird backstory, which I don't need to get into, but I love Maggie Gyllenhaal in this. Um, you see the wear and tear of this lifestyle on Christian Bale's character. He doesn't want it anymore. And this trilogy really builds to that. Like, how can I get the fuck out of this? Like, he gets into it. I don't think he realizes how bad he gets into it. And it's and it's a constant battle to get out and live a normal life. And I think, unlike most superhero films, this movie really deals with the reality of what it would be like. I think the MCU touches on that. It's fun to get into a world where, you know, a world where, like, the Falcon can't get a bank loan. And I think those are interesting things and the MCU is able to touch on that and the idea of like what happened in the blip but here 
This is much more about, you know, the personal satisfaction. What am I getting from this? Why am I doing this? I will never be able to balance the scales. And he's wrestling with that so hard. Um, And he sees like Harvey Dent as this savior. Well, you can actually do it and people will like you. But I don't think he realizes that like Harvey Dent is also can be pulled on that precipice as well. Like Harvey Dent can also be swayed. You know, it can also, there's no good answer, right? There's no good answer. I think that that's, this movie is like trying to find somebody else to take the blame, trying to say, you know, you do it now. I'm passing the torch to you. It'll be easier. You got it better. And that's really fascinating to me. Right. That neither Batman nor Harvey Dent on their own can do this without each other without kind of pinning it on each other at some level. And sacrificing their lives. Yeah. And Gordon making his family hate him and everybody getting mad at everybody. And, and, you know, I think trying to lean on a little bit of like this idea of the great romance you could have if you just get out of the life, like, like the Robert De Niro, Amy Brenneman one that we just saw in Heat. And I think doing it, you know, Basically, as convincingly as I feel like it does in Heat, which is not that convincing. I mean, the conversation that, like, Batman has with Rachel about, like, oh, are you going to love me? I mean, I don't hear any love in this. You once told me that if the day came when I was finished, that we'd be together. Bruce, don't make me your one hope for a normal life. Did you mean it? Yes. But, you know. But, but, you know, we we always have some shorthand when it comes to you're the love of my life. But Um, I also think he is emotionally immature. Like, she's not in that spot. Like, he's like, well, if I just give up being Batman, then I'll go back to normal. And then I'll be able to, you know, I'll be able to be the Bruce that you like. And we'll go back to that. But she's like, I'm past that. This is where, where we were is no longer the present. And she is in love with Harvey. That's why I think that's the love story. Again, I think this is a movie about Harvey Dent. I think that's where the love story is. And I think these other weirdos on either side are about corrupting him. And and whoever is going to corrupt him, yeah, he'll become the next Batman, but he'll be a public-facing Batman, which means his life will constantly be under attack like he was when he went to, you know, Bruce Wayne's penthouse. Uh, Or he'll be so overcome by work uh, that he will never have time for his love. Or he will, you know, put everybody he loves in danger. Like, that's one version of the perfect life for Harvey Dent. The other version is what we get to see, which is, you know he flips out, he breaks down and, and then he's like, you know what? Fuck it all. Let's burn it to hell. And I think that the idea of a villain in this, there's no villain. It's, it's sort of like order versus chaos and the best laid plans will totally fall apart when you don't expect one thing. And then the Joker isn't a villain. I mean, he is, but he is just chaos personified. Yeah. I mean, To keep the focus on Eckert for a second, like we're trying to do, you know, the way he described the character, what drew him to it is that he likes playing good guys gone wrong. Not bad guys, but good guys doing bad things, which in a way makes me feel like there's touchstones in here of of Training Day. You know, one one of the movies that we did very early on in this like heat segment, like, can you think that you're doing good while actually doing bad? Can you you know, be doing bad, but actually be good at your core. The way that in a way I want to believe that Harvey Dent is. 
And I mean, just even on the face of it, literally the face of it, I love Eckhart's casting in this because doesn't he just look like a lab-grown Kennedy that he walks into the frame and you're like, yes, I will vote for that man as he ascends through the political ranks. Like he just radiates goodness. And in that moment where like, you know, Rachel and Batman are having their little tete-a-tete, like, is there any hope for us? And she kisses him. I always get a little bit sad because I'm like, no, man, Harvey Dent, if that love could just live, if one of you didn't have to blow up, he is... Wonderful. Like, I want Harvey Dent and and Rachel to become this, like, power couple of Gotham. But could that ever happen? Because there's this moment where Harvey Dent, you know, both Batman and Harvey Dent face the same trauma, right? Even though Rachel, like, let's not put Rachel's opinion on this. Like, I believe that Bruce Wayne has feelings for Rachel that he feels like he can get, right? And, And if he only makes these changes. And Harvey Dent is actually really connected to her. She says she loves him, that she wants to marry him. They both experience this trauma of someone dying. And in that moment, Batman makes a choice. Uh, Or I should say Bruce Wayne, because there's no Batman. It's just Bruce Wayne. We talked about this in the previous episode. But Bruce Wayne makes a choice. I'm going to recommit myself to what I'm doing. I'm going to stay the course. And Harvey Dent is swayed the other way. Harvey Dent can't handle that pressure. And there's something about the Bruce Wayne character. It's like, there's only Nixon go to China, but it's like this idea of, you know, he has the fortitude and maybe the emptiness and to, to be true only to his word, where maybe when you have a heart and you have emotion, it's hard to separate that and act the right way. Like Harvey Dent wants revenge for all of those people who hurt the person he loved. And in that moment, he could have gone either way. The the Joker doesn't drug him. He doesn't get brainwashed. It's just the emotionality of it. And I think that's what this movie is kind of talking about is like, if you lead with your emotions, are you going to eventually hurt and make the wrong decisions? And if you lead with your intellect, Will you make the right decisions, but be unfulfilled? I mean, that's a really, I mean, that's Inception deals with issues like that too. Like what's the right way? Is it, you know, it's not like chaos versus order. Fuck that. It's like, how do you deal with chaos? You know, how do you continue to stay on the path when things are actively trying to push you off and it's so easy to just join their side? Right? Like, Harvey Dent actually makes even more sense to me today than he did in 2008. You know, just from like my own life experience of seeing people go from like Dent to Two-Face. Because I mean, you, have, you, have you ever witnessed this in any of your like your online acquaintances, maybe even real life friends, where the last six years have the stress and the chaos of it just radically shifted their personality? And they give one person I know who was... Heartbroken when Trump won, you know, very aghast, very fearful, very upset about it and channeled that fear into somehow over the last six years becoming right wing and hating Democrats. And it was just fascinating to watch like the steps of it. You know, like I'm so afraid of this man being in charge. We need to have, you know, like Joe Biden in charge in the next election. I don't like any of these progressive candidates. We need to have a winner. We need to have somebody who can do this thing. I need to put all my bets on this white night because I feel like only this candidate can defeat Trump in like 2020. And then going from that 
position of like fear we must have, you know, the Democrat win at all costs to like hating the other Democrats who disagreed with them to like now thinking all Democrats are dumb to like now thinking most Republicans are correct in everything they say. And like that domino chain of how fear led a person to almost go full circle is fascinating. And I feel like I've seen that happen, you know, with lots of people, like in, in different ways. Like I've, that like, I think often most people can't survive their first social media pylon without suddenly becoming like, chaos reigns, I hate everything. Now I am the villain. You have made me the villain. Like think about how many people you've seen who got canceled and then became the villain. And how yeah. rare it is for somebody to like go through a hard experience like that and improve themselves, come out better. How rare it is for somebody to, to do that work. And how even when that happens and somebody does the work, the world doesn't care. It's like, it's weird. It's like, it's, it's easier to become two-faced than it is to stay Harvey Dent. Yeah, well, I think we just lived through a version of this. Like this, this pandemic forced a lot of people through issues that were going on in our society, in our government, to look at where they stood. Right. And sometimes I think a lot of people were just standing on the sidelines and it forced people to pick a side or at least get in the game. And then you hope, well, if I get in the game, things are going to change. Well, no, it's just a continuing battle. Right. You have to continue to be there. I think that's kind of what the third film in this trilogy gets into. And that's why I think it was maybe ill um received because it's sort of like, oh, it's just never ending. It's never ending. And it's like, and at least here there's some completion to it, but this is the battle that we all kind of face. And I do think it's interesting that the 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 most optimistic people, the people who are the most in the right are the people on the two ferries at the end of this movie. It's like you have a group of prisoners and you have a, uh, a group of just normal ferry goers or people trying to escape the city and they're forced to choose, you know, who they should kill. And they actually make the right decision. They're not as twisted as the Joker. They're not as fucked up. Like they, they actually have humanity to them. Like I, Yes, it makes sense. I want to kill the prisoners because they're prisoners and they don't deserve to live. But then when you actually have that moment, well, you're going to turn that switch. Will you actually do it? It's like it's the Milgram experiment and they can't. And that's and that's like the biggest hope of the movie is like, oh, people still have some good in them. And I think that that's where Batman's like. Like. um, Like his structured idealism helps. He's like, you know what? I need to keep that spark alive. So I'm going to lie. We're going to make Harvey Dent the hero. Everyone will buy into this lie. Another lie on top of lie and lie. To, yeah, this to, film argues that lying is good. We need which, lies. We yeah, need lies, lies in our world. Fine. We yeah. need, And I think that that is, I do think that that's okay. Because what I is an honest so world? You know, I mean, and not to say that lies help a lot of things. Lies, you know, there's different versions of lies. Um but I do think it's this idea of like keeping hope alive. Sometimes you need to have these small victories. You can't just be beaten down. And that's, again, just going back to Dark Knight, the, the third in the trilogy, is I think a depressing movie because it's like the hope is kind of lost. You know, it, like, it, and, and there is, until the very end, I think that there's, there is a beautiful ending to this trilogy, but it, it is, you, you feel the weight. I guess that's what you, 
what I'm th- saying about it is like you feel the weight of of the Batman burden the most in that last movie, and that's the least fun. Well, yeah, and so like on your point, like this film is kind of listing things that we accept as correct that most films accept as correct. Locking up criminals is a good thing. Eh, maybe not. Uh, always telling the truth is a good thing. Eh, maybe not. Democracy is a good thing. This film is kind of like, maybe not. Because we have on these two boats that you're talking about, the boat of the prisoners is led, you know, sort of like a dictatorship. You know, the, the officers have the controls. The prisoners don't have any say in what's going to happen. The civilian vote is led like a democracy. They let everybody take a vote. And in the democracy, voting to blow up the other ship is wildly more popular than not blowing up the other ship, than letting the other ship live. This, the, the civilian vote is able to cast a vote for killing all of these people. I think the vote is like 396, yes, kill those other guys, to 140, no. It's an overwhelming vote. And yet, even if democracy sort of fails or if this if this idea of like distance from the crimes that democracy creates is a problem which is true like we live in a democracy that creates problems all the time we vote for policies that cause problems all the time for people we don't know you know people we might never meet bad things happen because of the way people in this country vote that we don't have to recognize and this film touches on that and then says if you though actually had to turn that switch, pull that trigger, take away food stamps from a family that you've met. You probably can't do it. But there's something in the distance of democracy and making other people do it for you, devices and machines, that makes it easier to do bad things. That is, at its core, like a true idea and also a terrifying idea. I mean, basically, the Joker is not wrong when he radicalizes Two-Face and says people like the system, even when the system is horrific, even when the system is a, you know, a truck of soldiers getting blown up in a war that is going on when the dark night is made because of people that we voted to started a war. So yeah, this is a movie where some of what the villain says is absolutely true. Even as he's like slamming pencils into people's faces and doing some of the most horrendous violence that I have seen on screen. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. (music) 
Well, I think what you're underlying here is like the beauty of why this is maybe one of the most interesting superhero movies. We talked about Superman early on in this series. You know, he is good personified, right? He doesn't do anything bad. A cat gets stuck in a tree. He's going to get it down. Here, what is good? Good is Batman, because I guess he's beating up bad guys, but also he's lying about who he is, what his resources are. You know, he is... A constant Using tech to spy on all civilians in Gotham. Right. For the like right the reason. Right. Yeah. He needed it. He's not using it for his own advantage. He's using it to win because in a moment of pure chaos, you have to play dirty. Right. Like, I think that that's the tricky thing. And and when you talk about the boat and the votes and, and this movie basically, I think, says there's no such thing as good. It's I don't really understand game theory. But it feels like game theory, right? It's sort of like you like you have to kind of make the right choice for the right moment. There's no absolute, and maybe this is not even game theory, but the idea like you have to adjust on each play, each moment, because what may have been right yesterday is wrong tomorrow. And, you know, and whatever was wrong yesterday is right right now. And I think that that is this complicated thing. And, and we're in a society that ultimately, I think, has a hard time wrestling with complicated solutions. We want we an easy solution. cannot. Yeah. We don't want to get into the nitty gritty of it. Like, we want to say, like, ban abortions. And I'm not going to get on an abortion horse here, but I'm going to say, well, what about someone who's having, you know, an ectopic pregnancy? What about someone that's having, you know, this medical issue? Oh, well, that gets, no, it's so much easier to say it's all out. It's all or nothing. It's this or that. And, you know, how do you fix climate change? To reduce a complicated conversation to, do you hate babies? Yes, yes. And and I think Jon Stewart did a great job with wrestling with complex ideas on his Apple TV show, The Problem. It's not incredibly like, ha, 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 here's a million jokes. Like, well, what is this problem? We We've... We have moved so far away from the discourse, like really getting into it, and we've gone into talking points, right? And it's and this movie is is kind of saying good and bad coexist, and chaos will always be working against both sides. Bad is the mafia, good is Batman. Chaos affects both. And and so much so, the Joker is like, I don't want Batman to die because it's too much fun and it keeps the balance. Like, he wants the balance. He wants it to be chaos. If he has no, you know, he has no horse in this race, he's able to do whatever he wants. And I think that that, that can be personified by a character like Heath Ledger, who is amazing in this movie, but it is also in why are people voting a certain way on that boat? Why are, you know... Can you sway people on that boat? That's chaos, right? That There's no pure right and wrong. Like, you know, the chaos can seep into every one of our conventions. And then we have to fight that in the most, you know, logical way. We can't just stand back. I think a lot of people think a lot of times with like the Republican and Democratic Party, a lot of times like, well, the, the Republicans don't fight fair. They gerrymander. They do this and they do that. And the, the Democrats try to be fair all the time. And I think that there is a truth to that. It's like you, you gotta, you gotta keep on changing your style. Like whatever you do, you have to fight back the right way. You can't just stay. And I think Al Gore is a perfect example of somebody who didn't know how to, you know, change his 
his flow a little bit to capture it. And when people do no, change right. their and flow. My Dark Knight wish is like, I, I catch myself being like, I wish we could cheat and lie and manipulate as well as they can. And then I'm like, no, that's but not who yeah, we want to be. And I, but I think it's like, it's a, it's a mix, right? It's like, there's always going to be a little bit of lying, a little bit of cheating. Like, and I, and I say that in a way that's not like, every system is, corrupt and you can look at it from its base level of just saying is everybody equal you know do we really have a world where everyone is treated equal no so we already have that imbalance so at that point for people to say like well i got here i made my own fortune on this well well what's your background did you really make it you know how hard was it for you to get to this next level so even on that level it's hard and i think what this movie is, and I know we've really gone away from all the, it's, they're flipping over Mack trucks and all this sort of stuff. But I think this is why the movie is so interesting. You know, it's, Heat is a movie about two people who are very good at their jobs and they've both made sacrifices in their lives, you know, and what's better? You know, what what is, you know, which is, is there any difference really between the two of them? And here, I think it it delves much more into that idea. It's like, well, who is good and who is bad? Like, you might feel at the end, like, I want Robert De Niro to get away with it, but you still know he's bad. But here, it's like, you know, is Harvey Dent bad or is he mad? Is the Joker bad? Well, I mean, he really, he did more to the mafia than anyone else did in this movie. He burns all their money, he steals it all, you know, he is more of a force to take down the power of Gotham through chaos than through law and order. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting argument to kind of look at, you know, how we look at any villain and, and, and any hero. And when you look at these movies, I think Black Panther really captured this perfectly. Is Killmonger a villain? No, he's not. He stands in the way of the hero, but you have more sympathy for Killmonger, I think, than you do most other villains because he's like, what he's fighting for is pure. The way he gets it is wrong as viewed by society. And that's and that's tricky. But you know, I have to say, part of the issue or struggle, I don't even know if these are exactly the right words about the Dark Knight, is that all of this stuff, all of this chewiness that I really admire in the film is very hard to hold on to when you're watching it, Right. Because very clearly Nolan's theme for this movie, his question for this movie is not, can the bat stop the Joker? It's can the bat save Harvey Dent's soul? Like that's the question that really interests him. And yet it is so hard to hang on to that thread of this movie because the Joker is just so mesmerizing to watch. And like, as great as Aaron Eckhart is, as well as he does that character, as well as that character is written, My memory of this movie, whenever I step away from it for more than like a month, is why doesn't that movie just end when he like gets the Joker? Why do we need that whole half hour? And I forget, like we need that whole half hour after Batman stops the Joker because this is really what Nolan cares about. And yet what he cares about, all of his great ideas, as well executed as they are, I forget them. As soon as like the Joker kind of flaps into view and says, Literally anything. As soon as he just makes a weird laugh. And I thought my jokes were bad. I mean, is 
Is it possible that a performance in a movie can be so good that it distracts us? It makes us forget what the movie is actually trying to talk about because it just sucks up all of our attention? Well, I think that that's good direction and good writing. Yes, the performance is truly amazing, but this character doesn't work within the rules of the game, right? It's like, oh, you're playing Monopoly with somebody, and then someone just comes in with like a laser gun and blasts the board. And it's like, wait, I thought, wait, we're playing Monopoly? No, 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 now we're playing space. Like, wait, what? Okay, it's like he is changing it. And one of the things that you talked about there, why doesn't the movie end when they get the Joker? It's because even the best laid plan the right plan, where everything comes together, where the good guys are working together and they made sacrifices, can be corrupted by one rogue cop. That one rogue cop who takes Aaron Eckhart to go talk to Rachel kidnaps him, right? The yeah, other the, rogue cop. The two co- rogue cops, yeah. Yeah, I'm you sorry. know, and then, yeah, and, and yeah, whatever. It's like, it's, there are forces of chaos that can wreck the perfect plan. And and I think why Heath Ledger's performance is so good, because I do agree, it is an amazing performance, is because the character feels off balance, right? Like, I think that that, like, the character doesn't feel steady to me. The way the makeup is applied, you know, I I heard that Heath Ledger would always scrunch up his face as he was getting his makeup applied because he wanted it to look messy and, and, and handmade. You know, when you think about the Joker from the Batman movie, he's very preen and pristine. And, you know, yes, he's got paint on his face, but it looks like, you know, he sat in a chair for six hours. Like Heath Ledger looks like he's just slapping it on the way that, you know, he yeah, licks his, his lips. clothes because, even look like he's been sleeping on them for days. They're nice yes. and they're handmade in their couture, but he looks like he hasn't taken them off to shower in weeks. The way he walks has a, a slight, like, gate in a weird like it, it he's walking in a world that's on a like in a tilt a world like you know there's that arm is up and the way that you talk about his laugh there you know this is so interesting you know Heath Ledger not only works with a voice coach for this but he locks himself in a room for six weeks or this is the legend to figure out who the Joker is like what is the Joker and how can I not be Jack Nicholson because at this point Everyone's like, well, how can you be the Joker? It's Jack Nicholson or it's, you know, even better, Mark Hamill with his amazing performance in, um, you know, the animated series Batman. But it's like, like, how what is this? Yeah. I mean, that's even Heath's question for himself. The Joker, the character of the Joker was just uh, too good to turn down. You know, I've said this before, but if, if, you know, if Tim Burton was doing The Dark Knight and asked me to play the Joker... I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't have taken it because it, it, you know to to, to try and even uh, to, to touch what Jack Nicholson did in Tim Burton's world would be a crime. Well, I think that this character that he creates is really interesting because it's not someone who is crazy, right? It is someone who actually has a very strong theory about what the world is and how the world should work. It's not like, is he unhinged? Sure. Are there psychological issues with the Joker? Absolutely. But he is a very fluid thinking person, right? Like when he has those conversations with Batman, he can go, you know, head to head with him. He can speak in a way that he is 
a mental equal to Batman. They're getting at things in very different ways, but I think that that's what's so kind of powerful about him. He's not like, <laughs> you know, he's not just like, he's not like full of toxins and making crazy decisions. I think that when you go to Harvey Dent, who also is Two-Face, he doesn't change his performance. His face is burnt off. I don't understand how he gets a suit, but we'll talk about that later. But uh, But like he is still at the core, working on the mental capacity that he has. I think that, that would, that's what makes the Joker... Well, yeah. Yeah. Like, one of the most unnerving to me moments in this movie comes really early on when the Joker is confronting the mob. And I think it's Michael J. White who's like, you're crazy. And the way that Heath says no with such sincerity, no, I am not crazy, that to me is absolutely stone-cold chilling. What do you propose? It's simple. We uh, kill the Batman. <laughs> if it's so simple, why haven't you done it already? If you're good at something, never do it for free. How much you want? Uh, half. <laughs> you're crazy. I'm not. No, I'm not. And that's why. And that's why. Like, I kind of wonder. Like, when he goes to see Harvey Dent in the hospital. And he is, you know, trying to convince him. He's like, I'm not a guy with a plan. I just do what I think in the moment. Part of me doesn't believe him because what we've seen in this whole movie is him actually coming up with really complicated plans and executing them. You know, by the time he tells Harvey Dent, like, I don't have plans. I don't know. Do I look like a guy with a plan? I'm like, we just saw you block off a freeway, have all of these cars, you know, assembled just like we saw, you know, uh, Robert De Niro do at the beginning of Heat. Like, oh, I'm going to need a garbage truck. Oh, I'm going to need an 18-wheeler. Oh, I'm going to need a fire truck. Do the do the genius Robert De Niro work of getting this whole plan ready just to, like, attack and take down the armored car with Batman. Obviously, this guy has a, pl- has a plan. He well, knows that the helicopters yes. are going to show up. Yes, this is a man with a plan. What do you mean? Well, he says this term, like, all your schemes, all your, you're all schemers. And I think, you know, what he's trying to draw the distinction between is, yes, even he's lying to himself, first of all. Like, I don't have plans. I'm chaos. Well, but to create chaos that actually affects everything, you have to have a plan. I think he doesn't Your chaos is so well ordered. Oh, no, I'm going to leave these, like, playing cards here with these fingerprints and they're going to take you to this window on this bullet and blah, blah, blah. This man is methodical as hell. I think that the lie that he tells himself is, and again, this is a movie about people who tell themselves lies. His lie is, well, because it's not to raise me up, it's not a plan. See, Harvey Dent has a plan and a scheme to put him on top. Batman has a plan and a scheme to make him the hero. My plans are just... To create chaos. You could kill me. He wants to get killed. Like, when he falls off the building, like, you don't feel like he's like, oh, please, please. He's like, yeah, kill me. I don't care. Like, yeah, you, He makes you that know. tiny little grunt, right? And then he's, yeah. like, heckling him that he won't kill him. Uh, uh, you, you just couldn't let me go, could you? <clears throat> this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. You truly are incorruptible, aren't you? Huh? You won't kill me out of some misplaced sense of self-righteousness. And I won't kill you because you're just too much fun. (laughs) I think you and I are destined to do this forever. 
You'll be in a better jail forever. Maybe we could share one. You know, they'll be doubling up the rate this city's inhabitants are losing their minds. Or, or even right before that, right? Where he's like, at, at the end of that chase sequence, he's standing alone in the middle of the street as Batman is like speeding to him in the bat car, the bat bike. And he's basically like, hit me, bat hit pod. me, hit me, hit me, hit me. Bat pod, excuse yeah. me. He's like, hit me. And he seems to mean it. He really seems to mean absolutely hit me, which is a thing that he wants it. He, he wants. Yeah. He wants people to lose control because that's what he's doing. He his satisfaction is he doesn't know that Harvey Dent is going to go, you know, full on two face, but he's trying. Right. He wants Batman to hit him. So Batman will start killing. If Batman starts killing. Great. It worked on Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent took this, you know, flipping of the coin, I make my own fate into I now I'm going to I'm going to take myself out of the equation. I can't do this anymore. So I'm just going to let if I don't have to have any consequences to my own decisions, I, it's a better way for me to live. And that's and that's really interesting. I mean, when you look at this movie, everything that we're talking about is surrounded by heat level set pieces that all this stuff is buried into. Like, oh yes, we've seen, like the the scene in Heat that we spent so much time talking about at the end of last episode, Pacino and De Niro across from each other. We don't talk about the scene in the interrogation room the same way, yet it's the same fucking scene. It is the same fucking scene. And it's like, well, why? Do we not consider uh, Bale and Heath Ledger to be these two titans of their thing? We should. But that that scene is two people saying, I, this is why I do what I do. And this is why I think it makes sense. And they're both saying it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work. I, and, and, and that scene is, I mean, the biggest homage to heat is that, and it's so funny. And this is what I was getting to last week, that heat scene, we break it down so much, but yet it happens so many other times in other great movies, but this is, why are we not talking about that scene? Cause it really is. Cause I think we are looking at, oh, the truck flips. Oh, the, the fairies, you know, we're looking at bigger things but that scene kind of gets buried, even though it's a fantastic scene, but it's, it's right there. I think that scene was the first one that Heath Ledger and, and Christian Bale even did together. In Christian Bale's wow. memory of it is that Heath Ledger that whole time was saying what the Joker winds up saying in other scenes. He's saying, hit me, hit me, hit me, you know, because he's trying to like egg him on to beat him up. And Heath himself was trying to get Christian Bale to like hit him, to make it get violent. And Bale was like, I was watching him fling himself into walls, breaking the tiles of that set because he was getting so deep into character, so deep into like the violence of that set piece. But what you also see in there is the Joker being really savvy in his emotional intelligence about what they have in common. You know, like they call me a freak. We've seen him get called a freak. We've seen mm -hmm. him get called a freak and kind of react to it the way you have if you've been bullied like literally your entire life. Like, okay. Uh, and he's like, they call you a freak too. The way the world sees us is not so different. And one of my favorite subtle things that Nolan does, just even in the staging of this movie the whole way, is look for ways that they're similar. My favorite little detail is like when they're having that big fundraiser for Harvey Dent. Bruce Wayne gets his glass of champagne, wanders around with it, goes to the balcony, subtly throws it out because he yes. doesn't drink on the job. And then Heath storms in, you know, dressed as the Joker, grabs the champagne and then like quickly flips out of his glass before pretending to take a sip. And like at least neither of them drink on the job. That's another thing they have in common. <laughs> well, they're they are focused on what they want, you know, and, and talking about that, just going back to that scene. There is something so freeing about being chaos like and wanting to do and get in someone's face like rubbing them the wrong way it's like literally rubbing them the wrong yeah. way grabbing all these extras by the cheek 
like circling Maggie Gyllenhaal and the camera just like looping around and around and around. And you feel like this menace of a man right up in your face. And it's so interesting because when you talk to actors on the set, they're like, oh, he was having a great time. He wasn't somebody who would get into a hole and be like, don't talk to me. I'm the Joker now. It's like, no, he was reveling in playing this character that could do that had no rules going back to my brilliant monopoly uh, analogy like the idea that like he didn't have to play by not only the the rules of the game but by the rules of the world in which the game was have you know taking part in and i think this idea of we are the same we are the same you are you know what's the difference between the joker robbing a bank and stealing all the mob's money and batman going in and, you know, and and taking out these mobsters one by one every night. Like yeah. what, you know, they're, they're both. What's the difference between the Joker having minions and, you know, who are willing to do bad and like Commissioner Gordon, knowing that he has dirty cops on his team and being like, it's fine. They do. They do what I want at the end of the day. Like, I'm willing to make a compromise with evil because I think I have to like the the, the moral weight of Gordon Commissioner Gordon hanging out with bad people like it's trading day and being like, they're probably there. I don't want to know. It's absolutely fine. And even the Joker calling him on it. Like, you're a guy who has minions that you can't trust either. Harvey Dent never made it home. Of course not. What have you done with him? Me? I was right here. Who did you leave him with? Hmm? Your people? The culpability of Gordon is fascinating in this film. It's probably the training day part of me that like we just watched that movie, but I'm like very attuned to it now. Like how much of this film is like seeing Ramirez over his shoulder. Ramirez in all of these scenes, you know, being this low-key Alonzo figure who's going to take down everything. You know, how many times in this movie the cops are like the bad guys, even if it's just like the minions in disguise as the cops? Like, Well, they think that they're working for the right person, right? It's like he's not... And again, this is not trying to go into like Batman comics, but the idea is like what I loved about uh, Todd Phillips' Joker was the end. That when it one ended per- and you got to leave. Yeah, and I got to leave. But when that the idea that like the Joker could get all these copycats because you're like, oh my gosh, I want to be like that. I, w- I also want to live without the rules. I want to, you know, and that's what we're seeing with Batman. And we're seeing that's why Joker has followers as well. They're not dressing themselves up like the Joker. But I like that idea. I think that that is something that's very much a societal thing. We saw that in the new Batman, the Robert Pattinson Batman. Like people wanted to create chaos. It's like, oh my gosh, it's okay to create chaos now. And and we saw that, you know, uh, we saw that multiple times over our COVID, you know, whether or not these peaceful protests and became riots because certain people get in there and, and take the advantage of a moment, you know. Um, but all that being said, I want to direct it back. As I said before, this is a movie about Two-Face. Now I'm going to say, I think the person that is the most right in this movie, not good or bad, but the most right is the mayor. The mayor is an interesting character because the mayor is not just worried about his own status of being reelected. That's not really a part of it, but it is more about, all right, what is Commissioner Gordon saying to me? What can I do? What makes sense? Okay, you can do it. I don't like it. Like he, there's, why have that character in there? And I feel like there's something about that character where he is really on both sides. Like, yes, he's a little, not that he's corrupt, but he's can live on that side of being like, I can play by the rules of society that's, that 
keeps me alive and I can keep this, but I also want to do some good. And he's like, he's the one that straddles the line more than anyone else, where Harvey Dent is all good. The white knight. He does everything right. He's attractive. He's this, he's that. And the mayor is somebody who is like, fuck, okay, how do I take care of a lot of people? And not that that character is fully you know, executed and we get to know that much about him, but the, the few times you get to see that character, I think that there's something really interesting about how that character toes the line more than any other character that we meet in this kind of official capacity. I mean, I'll say this. Is that this. crazy? <laughs> it's a little, I mean, it's a little crazy, but I'm open to this theory. I mean, I think I'm open to your idea that the mayor is the best leader. I do right. think the character yes. who is the most correct throughout the film is 100% Alfred. Oh, Alfred's well, sort of absolutely. right about well, everything. I, well, I'd also, and I'd also say that Alfred and like Lucius Fox, Morgan Freeman's character, are, are similar in the sense that they are cut from the same, you know, I wouldn't say they're two sides of the same coin, but they are very much, uh, they, they're older, mm-hmm. they've been through it, they saw it, right? So it's like Lucius Fox knows, hey, what you're doing is fucked up, and I, I don't want any part of that. I, whatever his background is, I'm out. But he's happy when it's rewarded. And the same thing with Alfred. Alfred's like, look, I've had a situation like this. You can't win. You got to pull yeah. back. And and I think that that like it's something interesting. We Alfred's we often like, don't look at age. You have to burn age. down the forest. You can't yeah. win. You have to destroy it all. And and you want to go there. And that's way before you know. But it's hubris that brings him here. It's it's like these two men straight up. In a world in which people tell themselves lies, I think Alfred has his own lies that he tells himself too. Uh, and Lucius Fox as well. You know, because they're protecting, they're protecting a bigger lie, right? They're protecting, like, the guy who's about to expose Batman. Like, you know, he, uh, they're trying to deflect, right? Um, but they also are very truthful. They are the, they are the North Star. They probably tell more truth than lies or tell it as it is. And, and give the tough, you know, the tough medicine here. You know, and as we're talking about these characters, and I know we're, we're touching, I mean, this movie is only about 20 minutes shorter than Heat. It is an epic. It is giant. Uh, and for it to reach a billion dollars and be this long is amazing. But, you know, the whole time I was watching this, I was like, God damn it. I'm so upset, well, for many reasons, that Heath Ledger wasn't able to continue this role because... I would really like to have seen how they could have continued this story because it feels like this is the crux of it. Bane became something else, and I think it was a fix, and I think it still addressed certain things. But how can you top it? How can you top chaos? I mean, Bane is more chaos? Stronger chaos? Like, Bane is the Joker who can break your back. Yeah, you know, this the, Joker this, at least is like he loses in most hand-to-hand fighting combat. Yeah, he's yeah. like he's more wily and scrambling when he has to battle Batman. Except for in the last fight where suddenly he's much stronger. And I'm like, what? Okay. But but yeah, like the, the Joker is all intellectual or anti-intellectual energy. And Bane is like, Bane is, you know, what we're used to. Like, oh, I lifted weights for nine months and ate nothing but turkey breast to get this body. That was a weird monologue in that last movie, but you know what? I've been on the Bane <laughs> diet, and I got to say, I feel great. Listen, I just started drinking protein shakes. Who am I to make fun of any of this? But, you know, again, talking about why this movie is the most interesting Christopher Nolan movie. Like, why is this the movie that we may put on the rocket ship to space? I think there's a couple reasons. 
we we just got into like the nitty gritty about, you know, about what is good, what is bad, what is lies, what is democracy. You know, we we we're we're diving into these giant topics. But what Christopher Nolan is able to do, and he does this with all of his movies, it is a visual feast. We talked about that opening sequence. That heist is one of the best heists that you can see in any film. The Mack truck flip practical effect of a Mack truck flipping in downtown Chicago is one of the most jaw-dropping, wonderful scenes. It's crazy. Like you have, you have all these. And it's almost musical. It's like 18 wheeler flips. And then the bat bike flips on the wall. And it's like that kind of, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's almost like the bat bike is the prestige. Here's the trick. There's the prestige. And they just come one after another. And I remember the second time, I saw it in theaters because I saw it in a press screening. And then I mm-hmm. like went and saw it when it came out that weekend. People just started spontaneously clapping because it, it was it, just it was like a rock number. And I think they're I think they're amplified by the music underneath because I feel like the action sequences aren't scored the way that you would normally like there are weird things in them. Like I, I was reading something like Hans Zimmer was like using like uh, a razor blade to pick at piano chords and there's a jaggedness to it. So there's also this, yes, you're hearing all these triumphant, these big things, but man, it's also, you're still keeping the thematic idea of the Joker underneath these visuals. And it's like, it does keep you. I mean, that those visuals are, I mean, um, unbelievable. I mean, truly, I think it's, like we take this movie for granted a lot. It works on all these things. I mean, what what are some of your favorite sequences in this film, like visually? I mean, God, it's like if I was going to make a list, it would go on forever. Like, I, I mean, okay, the Hong Kong sequence, for example. Oh, I forget like the about the Hong he, Kong. Yes, I know. There's so much in this movie that you forget about the God, things that would be the highlight of any other movie are just another scene in this film. But like the way that he does, like, first, the plunge from the skyscraper, you know, kind of from behind, and we're, like, suddenly soaring in a way the film hasn't done. But then the, you know, Christopher Nolan and Wally Feister cut back, and then you just see him plummet far away from this skyscraper. You get this kind of controlled sense of awe and scale. It's that balance between, like, I'm taking you on the ride and then I'm showing you the majesty. I, uh, yes. I love the way that, like, Batman just appears sometimes in shadows. The, the way, like, they don't... He just sort of is there. And they make it unearthly. He's just sort of like, he's not there, he's there. He's not there, he's there. That, that I love his emergence. I love the way they light the Joker's eyes so that they almost seem pitch black in every single scene except for these tiny little white pinpricks. They look, like, unearthly. Uh, I love the moment where, like, the Joker's leaning his head out of the window like a dog, that it takes that pause just to watch that. I love even just little things, like in the 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 torture videos, the snuff videos that he keeps sending in to the newscasters. Which, by the way, were directed by Heath Ledger. Yeah, by Heath himself, which is great. Like, he, I think he did the second one completely alone. Like, Nolan wasn't even there watching to make sure he got all this stuff. But the second one where he has, like, Anthony Michael Hall, you know, as oh, the yes, newscaster. Yeah. And he's starting to kind of say the normal beats, like, blah, 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 here's what's going on. And you realize so subtly that he's dangling upside down from the way the paper falls. Mm-hmm. It, it, like, up instead of down. He takes all these beats that you're used to seeing, you know, this hostage video and this. And he adds these strange little bits to it that make it different than you've ever seen well, that scene be played I, I out want that, that idea of the upside down, right? Like the Joker is creating this upside down world, this, you know, chaos. And that's this final moment visually too, is 
the Joker hanging upside down and Batman right side up. It's like this is yeah. this is the battle. We're looking at the bizarro world and the real world at the same time. This battle of, you know, uh, how they live. I, I was thinking about... And the way the camera's spinning around him, too. Like uh, you're feeling kind of sick and seesaw mm-hmm. and dizzy. And you're right, even about as the music that. is, like, going on. And, like, how the theme for the Joker is just that almost, like, wine. Just, like, a, a mosquito in your ear. Mm-hmm. A mosquito too close to your ear. And it just, like, sets your teeth on edge. And it should be annoying. And yet it's perfect. There's something about it. And this is, like, if I was to have a... If I was to level a critique at this movie... And I was really thinking about even bringing this up. I think you could probably get away with one or two less set pieces and it may be just as impactful. Like this movie is wall to wall set pieces. And when you're not in set pieces, you are in these amazing locales like the Batcave. That design of the Batcave is so cool. Oh, yeah. Like, it's I love all the so, low ceilings. In yes. It. And the it's black like, and white gridded one. Then the one that's all black with like just the little white dots. That oh, one's great, yes. too. But it's like, so the whole movie is, I mean, I was like trying to be like, what can I say about this movie? That's like, and I was like, I think there's so much spectacle that what happens is you lose track of it. Right. Because I'll even say seeing Bruce Wayne on that boat, you know, the yacht somewhere, uh, you know, on the Indian Ocean or God knows where he is. Uh, and then have that other plane land next to it. Him jump overboard and get in that plane. Like, even that sequence. Like, what is that sequence? It's just, it's, it's, j- yeah. but it is. It's magical. It's big. It's like, holy shit. It's so, and it's like, it and reminds it's me he's a billionaire. It, yes. It's Bruce Wayne cock blocking, you know, uh, a poor Harvey Dent's like ballet date. You know, it's like, it fits in thematically. It's right. also gigantic. You get Alfred irritated that he has to put sunscreen on more Russian ballerinas. It's not Alfred leering. He's like, oh, no. I wish they'd put on their own. Well, <laughs> there, I mean, there's something about this where I was having this conversation with June who walked in while I was watching the movie. And she was like, you know, I think that maybe the only like really weak part of this movie is Christian Bale's performance. And I'm like, you know what? I disagree. I disagree because I don't, I actually love the way that he plays Bruce Wayne. And there's something really joyful and still very cocky about Bruce Wayne. Like, there's a version of Bruce Wayne where he's acting as Rich Dick, right? And that's, I think, a perfect... That was, in the first film, perfectly done. There's a version of him in Batman where he's fighting bad guys that have... Yes, we always talk about the grumbly voice, you know. Um, But, you know, there is this other version of him, the, the moments where he actually is... Bruce Wayne that I'm fascinated by. And and there's two moments that I want to talk about. One is the boat, but the other one is when they're in, when they're in Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and he's spying and he's talking to Lucius. Like you get to see him in a different way. There's something like giddy about him. There's a different level there. It's not like there's a, um, a swagger to Bruce Wayne, the real Bruce Wayne. And of course there is, because yeah. he's a fucking maniac, right? And I just but you're think- right. he's not the Bruce who's pretending to be asleep. Yes. He's not the Bruce who, you know, is like pretending to be a creep. He's actually the Bruce who's making kind of funny, or the film is even making like kind of funny meta jokes about what you expect even in a Batman movie in references to bats at all. Yes. It's just, I had R&D work it up. Sends out a high frequency pulse, requires a response time for mapping an environment. 
Sonar. Just like a uh, submarine, Mr. Wayne. Like a submarine. That submarine fake out is so funny. And it, 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 it comes from knowing that you and your audience have both know what movie is happening here. And and I think that like oh, I just I get so like wrapped up in that performance because then we see another side of Batman uh, or Bruce Wayne in the way that he deals with the Joker because he's not like, I'm going to talk like that to the Joker. Like there is a lot more, there's an anger there, but the Joker knows who he is. Or I, in my mind, I'm watching this movie. I'm like, the Joker is not trying to reveal who Batman is. He knows. And it's torture. Like, he, like, wants to torture him. Like, I think I love that about it. Like, like You think he knows? Yes. You think he knows he's... Really? Mm-hmm. You uh, yes. think that he knows that he's being set up when he chases after Aaron Eckhart? Because I'm not sure about that. I don't think that he knows that he's being set up in that moment. But I wouldn't put it past him to be like, my major plan is to corrupt Batman. That's his plan. Is he going to save the figure that will save Gotham or is he going to save his... Like, the, the plan is, do I, how do I break Batman? Right? And so he already had it set up that someone would kidnap Dent from that moment, from the rescue. Right? So there... And, like, he knows that he can get that cop, you know, out of the... Like, look, this is the whole superhero, like, what is true and what is not. I, I believe that the plan is to corrupt... Batman. Could he get Batman and everything that Batman does to go into the side of evil? Because that would be true chaos. But he gets something even better. He gets Harvey Dent to go true evil. And unfortunately, he's killed before it can be realized in the way that I think it would have major effects on the city. But I think his plan is, let me corrupt this guy. I, I do believe that he knows. And that's why he doesn't want uh, the person who's kind of set up to be the Riddler to tell anyone. No, no, no. That takes the fun out. I don't want everyone to know. It's not about like revealing him. The reveal isn't the thing. The corruption is the thing. <laughs> I mean, when we did like our whole Batman breakdown of all of the different characters, like last spring, you and I really did have that long conversation of like, what makes a great Batman is a great Bruce. And yes. I still believe that this is not my favorite Bruce, but mm. I did try to rewatch it and make myself appreciate the glimpses we get of Bruce. Um, it, because the, it's the four layers roles, of the Bruce right? are fun, right? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Break down the four roles. I mean, it's Bruce Wayne, normal, the one that Alfred sees, and Rachel gets to see a little bit of, you know, especially in the first movie. Then you have uh, the Bruce Wayne that the world knows. The playboy, the drunk, that one. Then you have the Batman, the scary Batman. You know, they, the I'm going to come over here. And everyone makes fun of the deep voice. But motherfucker, of course he has to do that. Like, I don't understand why that it becomes a thing. Uh, anyway, and then the fifth version is the Batman, the Bruce Wayne that is fueled by anger. I think when he puts on that costume... He is working out his own issues. And when he is having those head-to-heads, and there's like three or four of them in the film with the Joker, that is a different... That's not the, I'm putting, I'm not scaring the fuck out of you to get you arrested. He's this not a, symbol Batman, which right. is what he carries around. He's yes. reactive Batman. And, and I think that those are, you know, those are really 
they work really well together. There, you know, there's slight differences, there's subtle differences. But I think from an acting standpoint, it's so interesting because Christian Bale actually said, you know, when we were doing the movies, I would say to Nolan, do you want me to try it like this? And Nolan would say, no, do what you are doing. I know what I want. So like Nolan knew exactly what he wanted from everyone and every performance. I have a friend who is working on one of his movies right now, Nolan's movie. And it, it and I think Fitch, Fincher is like this as well. Like you're a great actor, but I don't want you to be finding it. I have an idea of how I want you to play it and let's do it. Like the reason why he cast Heath Ledger in this movie is because he liked what he saw in Brokeback Mountain. He's like, I could see you play a character that had no vanity. I need that for this character, right? I need that. And, you know, he he toyed around with having Matt Damon uh, do the Aaron Eckhart character. And I think that, you know... um, you know, for whatever reason, that didn't work out at first. And I actually think that Aaron Hecker is a better choice because in a weird way, we would put too much on Matt Damon. I think yeah. at this point, Matt Damon's too, like, he's carrying too much baggage with him. Aaron Eckhart at this point, I think, is kind of a perfect figurehead. He he's looks very like Kennedy-esque. A, yeah, he looks like a caricature of what you think that guy should be. Yeah. I mean, I think my favorite moment of Bruce in the whole movie is the Bruce where he uh, gets into like a purposeful Lamborghini accident and then lies oh, about it to Oh, yeah, yeah, Gordon. yeah. That's Mr. Wayne's, huh? That's a, that's a very brave thing you did. You're trying to catch the light? Well, you, you weren't protecting the van. Why? Who's in it? You know, you think I should go to the hospital? You don't watch a whole lot of news, do you, Mr. Wayne? I think at that one, he's just like, very, very, very funny and like willing to let himself look like such an idiot, which I appreciate. But I still feel like the tragedy of Christian Bale for this role is he'll just never be the focus of this movie. No matter what he does, no matter the fact that this is a Batman movie, this is always a Joker movie first. And like or you just a Two Face movie. Or a Two Face movie. He's kind of third in the in his own movie. He's like the third ranked person. Well, he's even, the even person if he that... gets more screen time, he's third. Well, it's it's similar in the sense of like what De Niro is in in Heat. Like Val Kilmer is the heart of the bad guy, you know, quartet or trio. Uh, and De Niro, you get to see him open that up a little bit. Uh, but like he's, you know, I think when you're cold and calculating, like he is able to compartmentalize his emotions. We talked about this earlier, like. He could, like, if Batman was more in touch with his emotions, if Batman was Val Kilmer, not Val Kilmer the Batman, but Val Kilmer in Heat, and that's kind of, (laughs) uh, now I'm getting too confused with everything, but the idea, like, emotion breaks Harvey Dent. And I think that that's one thing that the Joker is trying to find. What's his weakness? What's his weakness? What's his weakness? And I think his weakness is his own psychosis, that he has no ability to fully let go and 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 have that emotion. That's why I think the end of the trilogy is actually so beautiful. It's like, just to spoil the end of the third one, it's like, I've released myself and now I can actually be myself. And like, it's therapeutic in a way. Like he, he did all he could do. He saved the day. And now he's going to live his best life with Catwoman. I don't know why that was the perfect match for him, but whatever he's happy and you see him smile and you see him in a, in a way the way he just looks at ease that i think the is incredible yeah. yeah 
Maybe that's why it doesn't affect me, though. It's because I am more willing to believe that there is just no there there at all. It's hard for me to imagine him healed in any kind of a way. And as beautiful as like what in my imagination, he's like, what, sitting at a cafe table drinking wine? Or am I just blending this with like an end of a Mission Impossible movie? They seem it's a very it seems very similar. I was like, eh, no, I don't I can't believe it. Maybe because he's so convincing at playing absolute emptiness. But I I cannot believe that there is a happy Bruce underneath any of this. You see, I think that as long as he's Batman, he can't be a happy Bruce. And the minute he absolves himself from the responsibility of Batman, he actually is able to become a real person. I think that the trilogy of this character is someone trying to find themselves. It's like, I was this fuck up. Now I came back. I need to do something more. Is this really me? I don't want this responsibility. I need to get out of it. And then he finally gets out of it. And he's like, oh, I found myself. Like, it's like, it's, he became an adult. You know, we talk about Spider-Man a lot, about the, the growth of Spider-Man. Like, he literally, we watch him in a way become from a teen or, you know, uh, early college student through becoming an adult who actually is able to get all that shit out of his system and then settle and be content with who he is. It's like that work that he did. That's what I kind of find, like, in the larger level, really interesting. Like, this movie is like, okay... I am this thing. I'm respected for this thing. I give it all up. So he's learning loss. He's learning balance. And then, and then he's learning to let go. There's something really cool about that idea. Like that from a character point of view, like that Bruce is the most, the least interesting Bruce because he's actually the most realized where like Pacino and De Niro, they are actually realized. They know it. They know what they are. They know who they are and they know how they'll be. Bruce is searching for what he wants to be, and he finally gets it. And I think that's more interesting. And he's still laid across from a Joker who has been very deliberately not given a backstory. You know, that Nolan was very much like, there will be no backstory for this Joker because maybe, yeah, maybe maybe there is heart to be found in understanding our hero, but he believes really strongly that it makes a villain less scary if you know more about him. He was like, the, the shark in Jaws is scarier than the figures of like Hannibal Lecter and Darth Vader became once we made more films to explain why they were so sad. And so I right. respect that, that he committed to like no backstory for the villain. And sure, I'll, I'll walk with you a little down this path of caring about Bruce Wayne, but it is very difficult for me in this, in this trilogy. But that said, I, I'm finding myself thinking more and more about something you said that like almost the weakness of this movie is that there is no weak scene. You know, that it's like so, that it is so like big, 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 banger, 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 that you forget about bangers. (laughs) That you you forget about Hong Kong. And that that this is a movie where I think rare, I don't even know if this has happened in any other film that we've ever talked about on this show. I'd be curious to know which ones this this applies to. This is a film with absolutely no deleted scenes. Like everything they shot went into the movie because like Nolan, it's you know, lean. has said that like, yeah, he has said that he like worked so much on paring the script down to exactly what it needed to be that they used every scene that they shot. And that seems wild. That feels like it really rarely happens. But he's like, I know what we're going to do here. I think that there's a couple things at play too. This is a grounded movie. It makes sense, right? Everything about, like there are some, 
maybe like, oh, how did he figure that out? We don't really understand the Joker's organization and how that all is so fluid and, and he's, functioning. He's freelancer. He's like Minion Dash. You know, but we but we see the but we see this idea that you know he he has people willing to die for him. You know, and that's and that's really interesting. Like from moment one, you know, you have these people fighting. Well, first of all, from moment one, people are killing each other off to get more money, right? So he's he's mentally gotten people where they need to go, and yeah. he's. I mean, I wouldn't say them. they're doing it for him, but I'm saying no. they're doing it for themselves because he's allowed that to happen. He's giving them the illusion that they will have more power, not with him, but they'll have more money. They'll get more take, like the greediness, right? And then when he goes in and, and kills one of the mafia bosses and he throws that pool cue down on the, the floor and he says, fight it out, you know, like the idea, like, I think what he's doing is offering power, offering a voice. And so that's the best currency you could possibly give anyone, a motivational currency that I think is really interesting. Like, so he keeps on letting people feel like they are heard, which you can make a lot of comparisons to, you know, a lot of things have gone on in our own society throughout history, you know? So it's like, okay, I hear you. I see you. I'm going to give you more power if you're with me. Uh, But I'm getting off track and just saying the movie is from top to bottom, very straightforward. Everything makes sense. Everything is grounded in this real world. You know, even the sonar is about right. The 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 uh, the 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 jet that pulls them out—that's a real thing. There are—they go through great lengths to make sure that this movie functions as much as you can in a real world. And I think that that's very hard to do in a superhero movie. Like you have to break reality at a certain point, or most do, or you create a fantastical element that, like, well, if that wasn't there, what would you actually do? This they kind of use everything. And they still, I think you could sit back, watch it and be like, this is a great Batman Joker movie. This is exactly what I wanted to see. I'm not walking away with any of this other stuff. I'm just watching the Joker create chaos and Batman try to control it. And I left very happy. And like to be able to function on both of those levels, to be like, I have all this stuff that I'm saying about society and I'm actually creating a pitch perfect superhero movie down to the way that like you see Batman's eyes in the darkness you know, and the way that we're taking storylines from, you know, classic Joker books. It's just like, wow, like it like that's I think that's the mad, that's the prestige. It's like what you said before. It's like, here's the thing. You think you're coming to see a Batman movie, but actually what you just watch is a a damn like a a damning like expose or uh you know on what heroism is and what and what heroes are and what superheroes are that that's to me more fascinating well and that is why i do think that in a way there's a cut of this movie that ends on like him beating the joker and it ends there and i think that's a movie that maybe makes people cheer even more at the end of the film because they're like yeah that's what i wanted to see i wanted to see you get the the joker get beaten down and instead, Nolan gives audiences the movie they need, not the movie they want. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's like, but that's not my story. My story isn't about beating down this Joker and everybody feeling satisfied that the villain lost. I'm not even ending this the way Heat did. I'm not even going to have Batman holding the Joker's hand as I kill him. Oh, like it was necessary for the way that the world works. That's not how I see the world. Well, the fact that the Joker isn't killed. And I know that that's... that's- very much a Batman thing. Like, I'm not killing anybody. And the fact that he takes the blame for killing people 
is interesting because it's like the one thing that he can hold true. The one reason why he's a hero is he doesn't kill anybody, right? Except he may he kills Harvey Dent. He pushes Harvey Dent off a building and kills him. Well, I mean, does he or do they both? I mean, he's holding him. But he's dead. And it is because Batman tackled him. I, I, I think all things being equal, I don't think he was out to kill. I think that that, look, how many times has Batman punched somebody and they broke their neck? I'm You're not saying, saying he, Is it bat slaughter? I, I, yes, I'm saying that there's an element of him that he's like, I'm not trying to kill anybody. I, I think, do people die? Absolutely. But Am I, I think accidentally his, be killing people? So it's sort yes. of like, it's sort of like, okay, it's sort of like Two-Face telling Maroney, I'm not going to shoot you. But the coin flips no, is have to shoot your driver, no, so maybe no, you'll no, die no. by accident. Look, look, if you're fighting him to the dead, like like Harvey Dent is fighting him and wants to kill him. He's got to fight back at full. You know, he can't like, I I, I don't know. That moment, I, I feel like it's not like he's put, like saying pushing him off feels aggressive. This feels like there is a, him the off. tackling Hugging him off. An aggressive hug. It's an aggressive uh, hug. I don't think he wanted that. to kill him. I don't think he wanted to kill him. Uh, but all that being said, I think like him not killing the Joker. Now, is that a comic book convention too? Yes. But I think if we're going to go as deep into, uh, into this as we have been, like, I think that there, like that makes it the ending too simple. You kill off the bad guy and the world is back to normal. No. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what I'm saying. Yeah, no, yeah. we, no. Yeah, you get, you, you like, there always has to be a bad guy. That's how the world works. And you know what? Now it's Batman. Now Batman's the bad guy. And, and, and we all forgot about the Joker. Like, because for whatever reason, the five people that Batman killed is way worse than the thousands of people that the Joker caused complete chaos with. Because you know, the two Joker, of them were cops. Yes, right. And corrupt cops. Or not. Or who knows? You know, it's like... Uh, like yeah. I, yeah, you know, it's like cops. it's yeah. so it's like this idea that like also that we change our bad guys immediately. You talked about this early on, like this idea of like cancel culture makes people the villains and then they're the villain until the next person comes and then they're the next person. And, you know, I mean, and I do feel like living on social media in itself just means staying alive long enough to see yourself become the villain. Any, any one of us who tweets will someday become the villain. Mm. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like, well, that's the whole thing of like the uh, milkshake duck, right? Like. You know, the minute the internet like puts you up, they'll pull you down. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's high school. It's everything. It's, it, you have to be careful of that level of fame. That's why I go back to like the mayor, just biding it, not biding his time, like, but just doing the right thing. It's not glossy. It's not showy, but he is making the right decisions. He's not being, you don't see him being corrupted. You don't see him being emotionally rash. I think that's something interesting about that character too, in this world of heightened craziness. And if you got to think, if Nolan put every character in there for a reason, there is reason about what that, what that character is supposed to be there for. Yeah. Right. I should get over the fact that I don't trust him just because his eyelashes remind me of Billy Zane in Titanic. I mean, I love, uh, I love those eyelashes, dark <laughs> eyes, so good. But that um, said, this film did get negative reviews when it came out. One of them from a critic who I love very, very deeply. She's just fashionable, lovely, sweet, kind. She once insisted I buy a necklace that I get compliments on every single time I wear it. And yet she wrote a very, very harsh pan of The Dark Knight. In her really? Oh, yeah. Stephanie Zakrak, who was writing for Salon at the time. Adore this woman. Adore this woman. But this is what she said. 
Somewhere between his first hit and his most recent picture, Christopher Nolan began gathering like a lucky squirrel having stumbled upon a horde of exquisite nuts, comparisons to Hitchcock. The Dark Knight makes me question whether he has actually seen any Hitchcock. Hitchcock was more than just a tease. The difference between Nolan and his idol is that Hitchcock demanded that we trust ourselves. Nolan demands that we trust only him. The Dark Knight looks as if it were made from a messy blackboard diagram with lots of circles, heavily underlined phrases, duality, good versus evil in the same person, kinship between hero and villain, and crisscrossing arrows that ultimately point to nothing. What the Nolans have come up with here is just more pretentious poof, dumped onto the screen in a style that pretends to be fresh and energetic, but is really only semi-coherent. There's no dramatic arc in The Dark Knight, only a series of speed bumps. The moments in the movie that should be the most dramatic are glanced over so quickly that we barely have time to register what has happened. Bale's Batman, lumbering through the movie in a suit that's supposed to be lighter than previous incarnations, is a flat, dull creature with no new tricks up his gauntlets. Playing this moody superhero, Batman has run out of shades of gray to work with. But she did really love Heath Ledger. She called Heath Ledger unsettling and difficult to watch, partly because it's impossible to remove him from the context of Ledger's death, but it is a fine performance regardless, and I wish the movie around it were more deserving. That's a really interesting point of view, and I want to go back to how she started it off, like that Nolan's hero is Hitchcock, and that Hitchcock wasn't actively leading the audience in the direction that he wanted to lead them in. I, I, I find that to be a really uh, flawed statement because I would argue that his Hitchcock is a master of like, look over here and that's what we did over here. Like he is constantly, he's got a big master plan. What Hitchcock always said was the making of the movie was the worst part because he already did, did all the work before it started shooting, you know, and that's exactly what Nolan is saying. Like I know everything that I'm doing by the time we get to set, you know, I, I, I disagree with that idea. I also don't think this is a Hitchcock movie. Um, no, you no, know, no. I, yeah. I mean, Hitchcock I mean, didn't make things that I th- that had this kind of uh, take on society. I don't think that he was doing these types of films. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's like Saboteur, but that sure. I think what I see in this review is something I relate to a lot, which is. Sometimes a movie has so much movie that it's just overwhelming. And yes. I can sense that it's like hard to grasp onto what he's saying because there is so much movie here. There's so many set pieces that I do feel like it's it's easy. As much as he underscores what he's talking about with Harvey Dent, it's easy to forget about it because you're just distracted by so much stuff. Well, so I see is, in this review, yes. she'd only seen the movie once, of course, because it had just come out. And it was like, there's so much going on here. I don't believe that there's anything going on at all because I can't hold all of this movie together yet well i think this is what i was saying earlier about like what could you cut out are there too many set pieces you know he has two set pieces it's like the opening one and the bank robbery like the mm-hmm. you know the, the shootout we you know and you think yeah, and a lot the about the final them. one the shootout in the airplane is a little bit underwhelming compared to the others oh it's, yeah that yeah. one i think is a lot smaller about like because it's yeah. almost in in the darkness and yeah yeah I, you know it's like like as far as a like big 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 sequences like again this is a movie that you're like oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah i think it does deserve multiple watches i think it it i think just like heat or just like kubrick there's a lot jammed in here but none of it is fat because like what do you take out well if they take out the hong kong sequence huh that kind of fucks up the plot and mm-hmm. it also 
messes up some story moments too. Like with, like you said, like cock blocking Harvey Dent, like that connection yeah, to Rachel, which you need. the idea of sonar. This like, Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know, so it's like, all right, well you, well, you can't get rid of that. Well, we need the, we need the, the big reveal. Like, I don't know where you, I don't know what you pull. Every, every string unravels the sweater here. And I think that that's what this movie is so good about is like even that opening sequence in the garage, the parking garage. It seemed like there was a moment in movies where we were doing a lot of fucking parking garage scenes. There's a Mission Impossible parking garage. There are a lot of circular parking garages. But even that scene sets up a couple of great things. The dogs, which have to come back at the end. The dogs arguably are like the most... You know, the, the vicious, most vicious he things that can He really attend. hates dogs. The number of times in this movie that Batman is, like, pissed off about dogs. Even, like, one of the last lines he says in the movie is, like, fucking dogs. I'll hunt you. You'll hunt me. You'll condemn me. Set the dogs on me. Because that's what needs to happen. Because sometimes... Truth isn't good enough. Sometimes people deserve more. By the way, I want to. I was thinking about this the entire time. I know there's been a Quentin Tarantino on the Video Archives podcast said I I don't like any uh, you know any movie where they like hurt a dog or kill a dog. And this movie, there's a lot of violence to dogs. And I was wondering actually like what Quentin Tarantino thinks about Nolan because they're very different filmmakers. And I was like, is this something that he does like or doesn't like? I can't. I couldn't quite put my finger on it because some of the things that he's mentioned in those episodes I've listened to, not that he's the end all be all, uh, but I'm just like, it was interesting. I was like, oh, there's like, there is a reaction shot. He's like, you should never have a reaction shot in a, in a movie. And there's like a comical reaction shot. Like no one can get jokes. Like he can't, like he's got jokes. I mean, like you said, like the submarine versus the bat joke. Um, And yet I feel like they're so alike in the fact that there are people being like, I shoot on IMAX. I you know, I don't mm-hmm. like to use as that much digital effects. It, there's a thing that Christopher Nolan said in the making of this movie that I feel like is something that I can imagine Quentin Tarantino agreeing with completely, that he likes it when there's a little bit of chaos in the lens. He doesn't want things to be so smooth and perfect, that he likes having, you know, instead of CG perfection, like what he calls, quote, the human element of choice, the little corrections, the little imperfections. And that I, their well, films yeah. both feel, they're both their films feel like they're made by filmmakers and not a bunch of animators. I, I don't I, know how uh, Tarantino feels about the uh, the the Batman movies, but I know Dunkirk is one of his favorite like war movies of all time. Oh, oh. interesting. Okay, that's interesting. What you just said about like certain things out of focus or a little messy. I noticed. I just saw Jaws in IMAX, and uh, there are elements of that in that movie as yeah. well. Like when you see it, like I'm like, oh wow, that's a really interesting shot, and it's not all perfect. And you forget your. I think your point is really smart about the animators. It's it's something that you can actually see and touch and taste. I do think if we're continuing to draw out the lines, and I've, the only reason why I'm bringing it up is because Quentin was a part of this conversation about heroes and villains. There is a similar meeting of the minds. I think of these two directors. I think that Quentin Tarantino can lean into the emotionality, right? And I think that Nolan is a lot more reserved, you know. Yeah. And I think, but they both know how to make movies, like fucking movies you know and they are they're very different and they come from very different places and dunkirk is amazing and of course that's a movie that quentin tarantino is going to love but what fuels them or how they are i mean it's you can hear it in the way that they talk about things you know and it's like it's interesting like we're talking about all these like two 
sides of the same coin. And I, I would look back at that and say, oh, these are two interesting guys who have very similar points of view. They do things very well, but they do things so differently. You know, um, the beauty and, of cinema. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I mean, and not, and not to say that they're the only two filmmakers, but yeah. it just was like I was just like a part of this. That I was like, when I was thinking about that dog stuff, it got me thinking about Quentin Tarantino and his thought on here. Um, but on that note of having yeah. likes and dislikes, impossible standards that might make things difficult for you to fully love, Paul, we have just done one other full year of this show. Oh my god! And it is now time for us to make some decisions of what we saw this year and what's going to go up into space. I cannot wait. Uh, this list has been something that has been, you know, hard fought every time we come to it. But looking at the list of movies that we've done in this last year, man, this is going to be a tough one it's because brutal. I liked a lot of these movies. But I have to ask myself, and someone said this on the Discord the other day, are they space worthy? So I'm going to sit down with my list and really look and really try to make the hard decisions here about what is worthy what's not a duplication of something that's already on the list do we have everything on the list we need because we'll we'll argue about the list as it exists uh versus our own picks but i I can't wait i simply can't wait and by the way i want to also just plug very quickly too um you know if you listen to our heat episode if it made you want to read the book heat 2 on the discord where we have our unspooled conversations there's also a book club about heat 2 going on and uh you could jump in on that it's about a month away the book club uh, meeting to discuss heat 2 so if you haven't started you could jump in there and continue these conversations about heat as i've in the middle of reading it uh and amy you read it you loved it or you loved it and you you liked it i didn't like it. it i didn't right. like it but on that note i should say uh, very much just by kismet. I was on a podcast that just came out. Um, the podcast is called One Heat Minute. It's a very devoted Michael Mann I show. I love this one, yeah. It is so fun. It's with Blake Howard and uh, my beloved Katie Welsh. And we talked about Collateral. We got really deep into Collateral. Oh, great. So, uh, yeah. Manheads, very fun conversation. Of course, we talked very deep about Cruise. Um, but yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know I kind of want to end this show, though, uh, honestly. How? We've talked a lot about Heath. We haven't talked that much about his death. I think we all know it, feel it, feel the weight and the sadness of it. What I would like to do instead is play a moment of Heath playing around in life. And uh, I found a clip of Heath on the Conan O'Brien show playing the didgeridoo. And it just made me laugh. And I just, I wanted to bring that here to you. Aboriginals uh, will walk through the, uh, uh, in the outback. Right. And they walk up to trees. And this is like the, the trunk of a tree. And they, they tap it like this. Right. And uh, they, they, they listen to it and listen to the sound, whether or not it's hollow. And it's actually termites that kind of bite their way through and, and so clear they, it up. So they, they find a, a piece of wood that's been hollowed out already by a termite. That's right. And then they cut the tree down and turn it into this. All right. All right. Let's give it a shot. And are all the termites out by now? Uh, you have to probably. Yeah. Okay. No. All right. All right. So you've got to be really, go. really quiet. Okay. Here we go. That is cool, actually. That is a cool sound. I love it. What a great way to end. And stay tuned because we will be announcing our next mini series. Uh, after we do our, our, our wrap-up of the year. It's good. We have a lot in store for you all. And remember, get your Al Pacino. She's got a great podcast t-shirt over at tpublic.com. A big thank you to our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our engineer, Ryan uh, Connor, of course, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, 
the beautiful artwork of Kim Troxell always Woo! on our social media pages. It's just truly, truly stunning. And uh, can't wait to see where we go next, Amy. Me too, buddy. Away we go. 